Thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you through his word. We trust that in seeing him, you will be moved to take your next step in loving God and loving others. If there's any way we can serve you, please reach out through mountainside.online. And uh, I'm excited about this, and I don't know whether we'll we'll do something else before we uh, uh, finish it. Um, it's gospels are pretty long, and Mark's the shortest one, actually. I wanted to introduce the Gospel of Mark and sort of help us think about its historic and religious setting. How does it? fit in with everything. And when we think about the story of the Bible, we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I heard a great analogy many years ago, and I never really thought about this, that we think of the uh, of the story of the Bible as three acts. And uh, act one is the Old Testament. We just have finished over three years uh, epic where we have gone through highlights of the 10 divisions of the Old Testament. And a number of you said, oh, I'm sorry to see epic. Well, we've got a surprise for you. We're going to continue epic, but this time, instead of going through the Old Testament, we'll have a series on uh, epic women, epic villains, epic kings, epic prophets, and so we can just keep this going as long as we want to go with uh, stories from the Old Testament. Um, Dr. Will Varner was the first person I heard say this, but the Old Testament, creation to about 450 B.C., is Act One. And you would think that uh, the New Testament would be Act 2. But when you get to the New Testament, you find all of these confusing things, and maybe you've never thought about it. Where did the Persians go at the end of the Old Testament? Who were the Greeks? Why are people speaking Greek? Who were the Romans? They're in charge. What are synagogues? Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? Who are the Zealots? Tax collectors? Samaritans? Uh, What's the Septuagint that it's kind of invisible to our eyes, but uh, um, Jesus at times quotes from the Septuagint, and so do other, other New Testament writers. All of these things just appear in the New Testament. Dr. Varner said the Old Testament is Act 1, the Intertestament period is Act 2, and the New Testament is really Act 3. He said you could go to a play, three acts, and go to the first act, and then go get a snack and eat a hot dog and miss Act 2. You don't need to probably eat a hot dog at plays, but just just pretend. And then you come back in, and you could catch on, and you could figure out. And so that's why a lot of times when 
when we preach through the New Testament, we stop and say these are who the Sadducees are. Um, but where did they come from? And so our uh, inspired text is Act 1 and Act 3, Act 2 being this intertestament period. And it's a period that uh, uh, is a significant length of time, and we just don't really think much about it. Um, and so I just want to set for you the historic setting of the Gospels. Epic ended, and I don't know if you remember, but uh, the last divisions was exile, where uh, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came down, marched on Jerusalem, but God protected them. Then the Babylonians take conquer the Assyrians and come and destroy Jerusalem, take off captives. One of those captives was Daniel, Meshadrach, and Abednego were the others. Um, and uh, then during Daniel's lifetime, the Persians attacked the Syrians, conquered them, and uh, the Persians allowed the Jews, the children of Israel, to go back to the promised land and build the wall and the temple. When I brought Acts to a close, it was the building of the, of the temple, and while one group is cheering, there is a sorrow and a crying by another group, and they were the old people who were saying the temple is just not like it used to be when Solomon built it. And so what happened then after that? And in 332 BC, um, Alexander the Great conquers Israel. Um, is, well, is, am I doing, yes. Alexander the Great is marching and conquering the world. Very famous, died very young. And as he comes as he's approaching from the north, he hasn't gotten to Jerusalem yet, but he requests aid from, um, from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had been allowed to come back under the Persians, and so the high priest sent a note back to him and says, we can't help you because we promised the Persians that we would do nothing against them. Well, Alexander the Great did not like that, as you can imagine. So he thought he would teach a lesson to the rest of the world. And so as he made his way to Jerusalem, the high priest very cleverly went out to meet him. And he said, hey, did you know that you're in our Bible? And he really is. In the book of Daniel, it talks about the, the horn that is short-lived, and he says, our Bible says that you will actually conquer the Persians. And Alexander was, was touched. Here's what Josephus wrote. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the, per the empire of the Persian, he supposed that himself was the person indeed. 
and he was glad, and he dismissed the multitude, the president. Hey, thanks for that. You know, why don't you go on back home? He conquers the Persian. Now, he controls the area, but he had a, a more soft disposition to Israel. This is very important in when we come to the New Testament because the Greeks now controlled the known world, the Mediterranean and the Middle East, and so Greek became the lingua franca, the, the common language. It's not necessarily that everybody spoke Greek, but everybody knew Greek to be able to speak to people from other countries. Um, when I went to the jungle years ago in Venezuela, all of the tribes spoke different languages, but they all spoke Spanish, mostly poorly, but enough to get by. So, so Spanish for them was that franca lingua. I think I said it backwards just before. But a common language to the Mediterranean then was the uh, language of Greek. So, so after the death of Alexander the Great at a young age, his kingdom was divided up among his generals. And some of them did not rule well, and the one who was ruling where Israel was was not ruling well, and the Egyptians saw an opportunity under the dynasty of the Ptolemies, and they came in and conquered Israel. Eventually, um, Antiochus IV, you've heard the name Antiochus and Epiphanes, also called Antiochus the Mad, he rose to power, 167. He persecuted the Jews. He wanted everyone to act like Greeks. And so he didn't want them to follow the law. He didn't want them to follow the kosher laws and all of these kinds of things. And as an act of great cruelty, he took a pig into the temple and sacrificed it on the altar desecrating the temple, sacrificed it to Zeus. And so there was a revolt. The Maccabean, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Maccabees, but uh, Judas Maccabees was the leader, the hammer. This is real relevant to me right now, just getting back from, from Israel. But the Hanukkah is when they celebrate the... Uh, success of the Maccabean revolt. And so then there was this period of time of independence and uh, during the Maccabean dynasty. And then in 63 BC, uh, they're conquered by the Romans. General Ptolemy is the one who came in um, at that time. Caesar Augustus was the emperor at Jesus' birth. Tiberius Caesar was the emperor during his public ministry. And he appointed Roman vassal kings. So the one of those kings was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant from Lot, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. He was cruel but an effective leader and a great builder. When you go to Israel, many of the things that you see were built by Herod. 
He even built a mountain. He killed his wife because he was suspicious of her and then seemed to feel guilty. And so he built this great hollow mountain to honor her. Um, and he rebuilt the temple into what was said to be the most beautiful building in the world. Uh, it was written that if you have not seen the temple in Jerusalem, you have not seen a beautiful building. Uh, one person commented that it was better to be Herod's pig than his son um, because he killed his favorite wife. He killed his uncle, killed his mother-in-law. He had 10 wives. He killed a son, Alexander Aristobulus and Antimatter II. And so uh, he was not a very friendly. He had people set up to be killed when he died because they might not be sad that I am dead, but I just want people sad at the time of my death. So when I die, kill these people. Um, his son ruled Judea poorly. Uh, the emperor appointed then governors like uh, Pontius Pilate to succeed him. A Herod Antipas, another son of Herod the Great, was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. And so after Jesus, this uh, Roman rule, the Israel had finally had enough. And so now we're a little bit beyond Jesus, but I just want to cover this part because it's really part of the New Testament time. And so they they revolted against Israel. The, the zealots being part of that group, Simon, one of the disciples, was said to be a zealot. Um, either means he was zealous about conquering Rome, or he's zealous about God. We're not completely sure, but we think more of a, of a rebel. And so in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, and there was one last holdout, and that was the group that lived at the top of Masada. They went into hiding, and they had food and water to last for a long time. And a great siege ramp was built, and uh, the... Uh, the speech was given by their leader to say, if they conquer us, our wives and our daughters will, will be taken advantage of. That's a wonderful way to, nice way to put with something horrible. Um, and we will be slaves and our children will be slaves. Or we can all kill ourselves with all of this food and with all of this water and they will know that we did this in a, as a final act of defiance. And they cast lots. And um, they actually left their scroll open to a passage in their synagogue. And it was discovered in the last century. And it was the verse about God bringing Israel back to the land. Isn't that an amazing, an amazing thing? And so they conquered Masada when they got when they broke in. There was one woman and two children that were were alive. And uh, Israel now thinks of Masada and makes the vow that Masada will not fall. Years ago, um, the military would take their vows 
on top of Masada, and that got changed to where now they take their vows at the at the uh, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. So that's really the historic setting. the The thing that that it does is it brings us to a place that when Jesus was born, Greek was known throughout the known world. So the New Testament could be written in Greek and find a wide distribution without translations. Um, Roman roads were built. I, should, I just thought about this. I should have had a picture of a, I took a picture of a Roman road. Uh, 2,000 years later, just going up into the hillside stair steps uh, so people could uh, travel from place to place so the missionaries, the word could go out. Uh, Rome ruled with a, with a strong hand, so there was relative peace throughout the, throughout the known world for the gospel to spread. So let's look at the religious settings of the gospel of Mark. And when we open up in the New Testament, we find that uh, not that people were following it closely, but there still was the belief in, in the one God, Yahweh, and that the covenant at Mount Sinai, the obedience to the law, was the means to maintain a covenant relationship with God. And there were two main religious institutions. There was now synagogues in addition to the temple. When the temple was desecrated, uh, the synagogues came into wide use throughout the region so people would have places of, of worship throughout the, the land. Levites and priests... Uh, were oversaw the temple worship, but now we have a Sanhedrin who was the Jewish high court. They're the highest religious authority in the land. We see Jesus having his trial, excuse me, before the Sanhedrin. The scribes mentioned were the experts in the law of Moses. The Sadducees were more of the, uh, the status quo party. They viewed only the Pentateuch, only the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. They denied the resurrection. Interesting that in trying to trap Jesus, the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection, that's why they're so sad, you see. Um, they tricked him, tried to trick him with a question about the resurrection. The Pharisees were meticulous about keeping the law, and they placed a lot of weight in not only the law, but in the traditions, and they are the ones who keep challenging, why are your disciples uh, picking grain on the Sabbath? Why are you doing this? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? Then there were the Essenes. We don't see them in the New Testament. They're so important to us, though, in that the Essenes were the group that was making the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, our oldest copy of the New Testament was 1,000, I mean of the Old Testament was 1,000 um, A.D. 
And what this did is it demonstrated that 300 years before Christ, the Old Testament hadn't changed. And so it was a, an incredible affirmation of, uh, of the enduring word of God. Then there were the zealots, social bandits, and other revolutionaries who were engaged in resistance. And there was also a high messianic prevalence at the time. So that's kind of the historic setting. All of this really taking place in Act 2, bringing up to the point where the Gospels open with uh, just in the year before Jesus' birth, with stories of the birth of John the Baptist and Mary and Joseph and all of that. But when we think about all of these things that took place, we're always reminded of Galatians 4.4, but when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law, a common language, roads, and a, and a global, global's not the right word, a uh, known empire at that time, peace that reigned throughout. So we open the New Testament, we come to four Gospels. And just a little bit about all four Gospels. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of them aren't disciples. Do you know who they are? Some, sometimes people say, can you name the disciples? And they go, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Mark and Luke were not disciples of the 12. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector in his, in his former occupation, became a disciple. Mark was a second generation in the sense that he was young when Jesus was, was uh, ministering. Wasn't one of the 12, thought to be uh, Peter's disciple, and it is commonly held to the fact that Mark is really Peter's story with Mark as the one writing it down. Tradition has that the Last Supper was in Mark's parents' home. And if you remember when Jesus left, there was a young man who followed behind and he was wearing a one-piece uh, shirt. And when they, the arrest and all of that confusion happened, somebody grabbed his shirt and he ran off into the night naked. Uh, Mark chapter 14, 51 through 52. Uh, clothed in a long linen shirt, when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked into the night. That was probably Mark. Um, then Luke was the researcher. He was a doctor. And listen to the opening of Luke. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circling among us from the early disciples. Now he's writing of himself, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning I also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain 
of the truth of everything that was taught. Then the Gospel of John was written by uh, John, who was a fisherman when Jesus called him. And uh, Mark chapter 1, so not next Sunday, but the Sunday after probably will be um, where we'll look at the Mark's account of the calling of James and John ben Zebedee. Uh, Zebedee was their father's name. The audience of the four Gospels is very interesting. Each writer had a particular audience in mind. And we pick up on their audience in the beginning of the book. Matthew opens with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing the kings of Israel to the Jews. He begins with Abraham. And this is, you, you hear people making fun, Abraham begat, that's a King James. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Then in verse 6, we get Jesse was the father of David. David was the father of Solomon. We're working our way down through, and we move out of the kings and into the uh, rest of the history. And we come to Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So Matthew is proving that Jesus had a legal right through his adoptive father, Joseph, to be the king of Israel. Joseph would have been the king of Israel had there not been a failure on the part of the kings. Many times, Matthew is reminding the reader of Old Testament prophecies and reminding them and showing them how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. If you pass out Gospels in Israel, you do not pass out Gospels of John. You pass out Gospels of Matthew. And so the Gospel track in Israel is the Gospel of Matthew. Mark wrote to the Romans, picturing Jesus uh, as the uh, servant. A great book. It's, it's a big book, but uh, Lehman Strauss's son, Mark Strauss, wrote four portraits. And uh, it's a great book on the unity and the diversity, the four pictures of Jesus through, through the Gospels. Um, and so a key verse in Mark is, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Luke was writing it to one individual, but it has a Gentile flavor. And so Luke explains things that people may not be familiar with. And it's a very thorough book. Uh, that Jesus is the Savior. John was written, in a sense, with everybody in mind. And the portrait of Jesus there is that Jesus is God. So the very first words of John are quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint, and in the beginning. He, so he immediately takes the reader to Genesis 1, 1. The word 
already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So he's demonstrating that Jesus is the creator, is God. He came into the world he created, and they didn't recognize him. And verse 18, I love this verse. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. I love the idea of, you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And Jesus is demonstrating in flesh the heart of God. If you compare the Gospels, we have three Gospels that are we call synoptic. That means that there are similar. Um, Luke, Matthew, and Mark have very much in common. In fact, only 7% of Mark is unique from the other two. Uh, Luke is 59% unique, and Matthew is 42% unique. And uh, it's a complicated thing to try to assess whether their sources are different or whether they're each other. It's commonly held that Mark is the is the original source for them. 92% of, of John is unique. John is completely set apart. John seems to be written of Jesus at the feasts, and that's the emphasis of John rather than a history. Mark is told rather, well, let me hold that statement because that's in my next slide. Let's focus now on the Gospel of Mark. If you today go home and read the first chapter, uh, you're like breathless. It is uh, fast, moving, dramatic. It reads like a series of eyewitness accounts. I saw him do this, and I saw him do that, and I saw him do that, and he did this, and then he did that. Um, he seems to be concerned about telling us what happened rather than when it happened. And so his stories many times are put together in a way that uh, he, he kind of loves the number three. He seems to put three stories together in a way that sort of help to explain each other. So he writes like a, more like a journalist than a historian, where Luke is more of the historian. And so we find more um, topically... A topical telling of Jesus' life rather than chronological. Um, verbs like run, shout, amaze, these, these are hard-charging words. His favorite word is translated usually immediately or at once. Ten times in the first chapter, you see the word immediately. It's just moving from one thing to the other. One of the big themes, Jesus has the power to forgive sins, which only God can do. Uh, the evil spirits recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God in chapter 1, as the Son of God in chapter 3, as the Son of the Most High, 
of chapter 5, and Jesus is telling them to be, commanding them to be quiet. Uh, Mark Strauss says that is so Jesus reveals himself in the way that he wants to reveal rather than giving permission to uh, demons to be the one to uh, reveal who he is. Um, Mark's gospel, the authority of Jesus is stressed through his leading and his teaching. And so you're going to see a lot of leading, a lot of miracles, and a lot of teaching. But Mark also warns us that um, all of this stuff doesn't necessarily change the heart. The Pharisees and the Herodians oppose Jesus. Uh, scribes think that Jesus is possessed. His hometown is unimpressed. Um, his miracles cause Herod to imagine that John the Baptist has been resurrected after he beheaded him. And even his disciples misunderstand. And this is another theme of Mark in that the disciples just really don't get it. I mean, Peter has that one moment of thou art the Christ, the son of God. And then immediately following that, Peter says, your plan is all wrong. Uh, let me help you uh, rewrite, rewrite the plan. And so next week we begin with Mark chapter 1. It would be great if you read it, uh, came a little prepared. I want to take a minute, too, to emphasize the importance of the fact that the gospel writers are eyewitnesses. This is not something that was written 100, 200, 300. We have, we have evidence, fragments of the Gospels going back well into the first generation. Listen to what Paul says years later when he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, um, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before, you welcomed it then, and you still stand firm. It is this good news that saves you. If you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important, and here's the gospel, that Jesus, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Now listen to this. He was seen by Peter and then the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And what, what Paul is saying, if you want, you can still go ask some of those 500 people. You see, this is not people writing of stories or making up stories. These are eyewitnesses who are writing to a generation where their story can be verified. Um, this, this is sensational, that they are writing these things at a time where they can be verified and checked out. Uh, we're so far removed from it now that even the thought of 500 people saw it is, it, it's just 
outside the realm of the possibility of, of us. And many times we just miss the point of how profound that was written within a lifetime of Jesus. And so the whole New Testament is written in the context and by people that were eyewitnesses connected somehow to the eyewitnesses. So now I want to, next to the last thing, talk about something pretty nerdy. Um, but I think really important. I talked to Lyle about this and he said, keep it under five minutes. <laughs> like he does that. <laughs> in recent years there's been a lot of talk about faith deconstruction it is uh, the various reasons people who actually some of them were very well known leaders have walked away from their faith one of the reasons that is cited often is having doubt about the reliability of Scripture. Um, state, making statements like this. We don't know what the original was. We have copies of copies of copies, and so on and so forth. Now, let me say this before I jump into the cool stuff. We believe the doctrine of inerrancy refers to the original manuscript not the copies. It's easy to prove that God doesn't prevent copyists from making mistakes. We could prove it tonight if, uh, if I gave everybody a piece of paper and had you copy five sentences, there would be people that would make mistakes. Bibles get published that have to be taken back. When the first Ryrie Study Bible was published in the New American Standard, he got his first copy, and he found a mistake in Galatians, and they had to carefully, actually took a razor and cut it out of all the copies and glued it back in. So you could tell, you know, if you looked really close, that uh, there was a mistake. So God has not um, overseen to supernaturally protect the text from copiers, but God has has through his providence, given us the ability to be absolutely certain about the original said. So there, we're going to show you a slide, and I'm gonna, I put, just before the service, a link on our Facebook page where you can go and you can look at, at this uh, post. The person who is hosting this, his name is Mark Ward, and uh, the Ward family actually used to come to Mountainside when he was uh, a young, when he was in school, and uh, they have moved away. But he is at the forefront of talking about Bible translations, and especially uh, uh, the King James. So let's do a thought experiment for a moment. The first printed Bible until was not until the 15th century. 1453, the printing press, and I think the first, first Bible, the Gutenberg, was 1446, something like that. 
And so until then, every Bible was handwritten. So nobody had a Bible. I mean, for you to have a Bible, you'd have to have paper. And it, it just, you, you learned the Bible by, by attending, hearing it read, etc. So let's do this thought experiment. Um, let's say I gave everybody a paper and pen and asked you to copy one chapter of a book. And just for our thought experiment, I'll choose C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, which is a book I plan to read this summer. So let's pick one chapter, and in that chapter, 950 words. If 200 people copied those 950 words, how many of you think that every single copy would be perfect? Nobody. Um, I can't even copy a verse without mistakes many times. How many differences would we find? And so let's instead, for our thought experiment, say we're not just going to have 200 people. We're going to hire 1,400 people to be copyists. And that number is significant. 950 words is significant. And I'll tell you why at the end of my thought experiment. So imagine that we take this chapter from C.S. Lewis's book, and everyone is to make a copy of it. And 200 of our 1,400, are, well, the main character's name is Mark Gainsby Studdock. There are two Ds in Studdock. Imagine that 200 of our copyists spelled Studdock with one D. That would be 200 variants. But his wife is also Jane Tudor Studdock. And so her name, if you put one D, so now we are up to 400 variants. Oh, wait, Lewis uses his last name to describe him. Studdock did this, Studdock did that. And so in this chapter, he uses the name Studdock five times. And so 200 use one D instead of two. So now we have a thousand variants. Anyone here think that we would not be able to understand what happened there? We have a thousand 1,200 copies that say S-T-U-D-D-O-C-K, and we have 200 that have 1-D. So we have 1,200 variants for these 950 words. But there's one other problem. And Studdick spoke with an accent. And so he didn't say, I want to get them. He says, I want to get them. And so Lewis put an apostrophe E-M, want to get them. And one place in the book, he says 13 words. I hate them. I want to find them, arrest them, and lock them up. Well, those 200, and then there's 200 transcribers different than the first. And they put them 
T-H-E-M instead of M. Well, that comes to, uh, and so in 13 words, we actually have 800 variants. And again, you say, well, yeah, there are variants because people made mistakes, but there's no question of what the original said. But if you start to add them up, I mean, there's 950 words. Um, we have 13,000 variants in 13 words. And if I said to you, these 950 words, we have more variants than words. That sounds very alarming. So what this guy, Daryl Post, did is he took 1,400 manuscripts, 14 copies of John 11, which has 950 words. And in those 950 words, there are 3,785 variants in 1,400 manuscripts. Now, on the surface, that sounds very alarming. So what he does is he starts here, 945 words, 3,785 variants. You can go on to the next slide. The next slide is just taking four of his main slides. And he starts to talk about misspellings. In Greek, Mary and Martha are spelled exactly the same. The last letter is either a, like a Y or an H or TH sound but it's one letter difference. So sometimes he spells Mary without the I, without the Y, or Martha, and he says Martha and Martha went to Jesus. That would be these variants. Uh, sometimes a copyist repeats a phrase. He says, you know, and this happened, and then he goes to take a break and he comes back, and says, and this happens. Sometimes the copyist skips a line, goes from this line and starts down here, loses his place. And so as he works his way through through these various kinds, the numbers start to come down until the final number is, on the next slide, five. In those 400 and 945 words, there are five words that we can't say for sure. They're sort of in the way that they're represented. It is things like this. Did the Jews come to Mary and Martha or did they come to the place of Mary and Martha? Um, did it, Mary say it or did she think it um, the thing of Jesus the thing that Jesus did or the things that Jesus did now in each of these examples that I'm giving it is it is rather obvious which is the right choice but it is falls into that category of Here's what we, what we think. Now, I say all that, and I'm going to stop right there. But I would suggest that you just take the time. Mark 
kind of interrupts him a lot to help make it simple so he doesn't get too deep in the weeds about this. But it's a marvelous illustration of the difficult science of textual criticism. This guy says in his first year Greek class, he creates a scenario where he gives these different manuscripts and asks these Greek students, and he says virtually every time they are right all the time. They, it is so obvious to a first-year Greek student um, what is the correct choice. But he says when we come to the New Testament textual criticism, we have the best scholars in Greek and and ancient manuscripts in the world. Um, so I would suggest that you take some time to read it. That if you, if you have somebody in your life, and I'm sure that a number of you do, who has walked away from the faith or somebody who resists the faith because they've heard about copies of copies of copies. For example, let's take this statement, uh, nobody had a complete New Testament until three or 400 A.D. Well, that's because you had copies on scrolls, and you don't have all of the scrolls in one together. But we can go way, way back to the very beginning and see what the writers were saying, what Scripture is. So I just, I just threw something else out there, but... Uh, uh, take some time to look this look this through. So let's bring this to a close. The real reason we're looking at the book of Mark is to know Jesus. Here's two statements. I know about Jesus or I know Jesus. Now we're sitting in church so you know what the right answer is. But does your life give evidence of the right answer? In the early 80s, I was working in software development. I had to travel a lot. And right before I went out of town, um, Dwight Pentecost's book, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ, uh, came out. And I went to the bookstore and bought it. it was a, it's a big volume. And I can... <clears throat> I can remember getting to the airport, getting on the plane. I can remember so well being on the plane flying to Chicago from Cincinnati and starting to read this book. And I had this thought, am I reading this book to know more about Jesus? Or do I really know Jesus? Not in the sense that know him in salvation, but but is my life about getting to know Jesus? It's not that the first part is bad. In fact, it's important too. Um, certainly nothing wrong with the first statement. I want to know as much about Jesus as I can. But in that, am I getting to know Jesus? When I read the Bible, does it read like a rule book? Does it read like, I have to read this, I have to get this done, or like a history book, or a love letter? How does it hit you? Again, you know the right answer. 
But sometimes we fall into the trap of learning things. And I think that that was the, is the challenge to the church time that I grew up in. We were so much about learning things that sometimes we missed the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus. I'm going to challenge you in the coming weeks to determine in your heart to go beyond the facts. That when you come and hear about Jesus, uh, that you transition in your heart to also learning Jesus. So when Ruthie and I were dating, uh, I wanted to know all about her. But different than I wanted to know all about George Washington. I was kind of a president's nerd when I was growing up. And uh, I didn't want to just know her birth certificate. I mean, her birthday and her social security number and family stories. I like knowing those things that helps to understand her. But I wanted to know things like, uh, what does she like? She likes chocolate. She likes to kill a mockingbird. And in those days, she liked Raggedy Ann and Andy. Um, we were going to buy a dog and name it Rags. So uh, we never did. We named our dogs like Jack, Katie, Mike. But what doesn't she like? She doesn't like vegetables. And she doesn't like rude people. How does she treat people? She's the nicest person I know. And she doesn't ever repeat anything. Not even to me. I mean... If Ruthie heard from you about the weather, she would be hesitant to repeat it to me. Don't, you know, the number one thing she says to me, besides I love you, is uh, don't say anything to anybody about, like, that's the thing that always upsets me. Like, why would I say anything to anybody about, uh, but anyway, I'm letting you too deep into our lives now. But the point is, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of faith are always spoken of with the context of love. And this is truly the way that we are to approach the Bible, is not just to learn stuff and not just to know what I'm supposed to do, but to fall in love with the Savior, to fall in love with Jesus, to get to know. And I love this, and I be mindful of this as, you, as we study Jesus, that we're also learning what God is like, because Jesus said, look at me, and you'll see the Father. That's why Jesus seems so set back on his heels by Philip's uh, saying at the last night, just show us a father and that'll be good. And Jesus is like, that's what I've been doing this these three years. So as we come to communion, I just want to take the beginning part as we examine ourselves uh, to just give a moment to pray and to ask Jesus to invite us into a deeper love, a deeper 
understanding, a deeper relationship that we begin to understand as we've been singing already this morning, uh, knowing you is enough. It's like the Bible says, if Jesus is all there is, that in, in a sense, knowing you is enough is what our heart needs to be convinced of, but he's more than enough. He is the absolute. So let's just take a moment and bow our heads and uh, let's take a moment to pray. Psalm 139, verses 23, 24 says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting. God knows your, your attitude towards him, your thoughts towards him. So would you just speak to the Lord about that? Father, I, I confess to you, and I know all of us to one degree or another recognize that uh, it is easy to go through the scripture, to go through a church service, or um, through a day um, without being passionate about you even to avoid you because we want to do something that we know offends you. And so, Father, I pray that you would renew in us a, a right spirit, as David prayed, uh, that you would rekindle a flame in our hearts. If, there, if the flame is already burning bright, that you would fan it. Uh, we want to know you. We want to... be changed, not just because we gut out a commandment that we see, but because we are so much in love with you that we want you to be a part of our lives. So, Father, I pray for each person in this room that that would be their passion, that if somebody's here doesn't even really know what that means, that they would seek Pastor Lyle or myself or someone else to understand. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.